Hey everybody, welcome back to Enter the Nerd Zone. This is Jay. And this is Pete. Pete, what's going on my man? How you doing? Hey man, I'm so happy about this show today. I am too. So, we kind of been teasing it. Uh, we do have a special guest today. Now Pete, you, you've met him, you've been to his comic shop, so I feel you should be the one to introduce him. Alright, so first of all, let's just say that uh, this is our first real special guest, right Jay? Absolutely. Yeah. Adam West aside, absolutely. Adam West aside, yes. We do have famous people on our show every once in a while, and uh, unfortunately he passed away. Uh, and I'm still regretting that. Uh, but so uh, today we actually have on our show, our first guest is Matt. And Matt, I'm going to uh, ruin your last name. So. Matt. Okay, Madrigal. <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, okay. Who is the owner of Kirby? Uh, Kirby? comic store uh, yes. in Hanover, Pennsylvania, yeah. and you yes. can find it on Instagram. We'll do a lot of plugs later on, too. But you can find it on Instagram um, at the same same name, Kirby Comic Books Comic Store, right? Uh, Instagram is Kirby Comic Store. My Facebook is Kirby Comics. CJ, he uses Facebook. Anyway... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I prefer Instagram. I prefer uh, Instagram's a lot easier people's questions but i try to you know i try to do all of it <laughs> there you go prefers instagram <laughs> oh yeah always got to get the last word um so anyway but the real reason why not only this not only the comic books and obviously we're into the nerd zone but matt was for four years a professional wrestler and yes. i know when i when jay and i were talking about it we were so excited about having it having matt on because i know jay has a million questions. So Matt, <laughs> I uh, do actually. <laughs> the, uh, why don't you just kind of give us a brief, um, you know, a brief background of your wrestling career? All right, I'll, I'll give it a, a quick summary. As I wrote uh, two books, basically uh, about it, one self-published, but I'm just going to give a, a little bit of a summary. We'll just we'll just go over some of the higher points right now. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back to 1995 when I was at the ripe age of 20. I was a big wrestling fan. Uh, I was in the Philadelphia area. I went to the EC, the original ECW arena in in South Philly. I got to see I got to see the beginning of it. I got to see the dawn when Eddie Gilbert was the first booker, and there was nobody in the crowd. You could see me in the front row talking to Rob Feinstein, and there's nobody around. It was a hundred people in a bingo hall, and I watched it grow in just a year to what Paul Heyman. Uh, created the you know the mad scientist himself he created not just a wrestling company but a culture he created a culture that would have ramifications and literally change the wrestling world um, and I was there to watch all of it and that energy inspired me to become a pro wrestler oh. um, that, that's I, great because I mean Matt so, I mean that was gonna be one of my first questions is yeah all of us here are wrestling fans, and I think at one point in our lives, we kind of maybe toyed with the idea. But I was going to ask you, like, like what was your defining moment? But you, you got it right there. So yeah. that's great. I, I always use uh, the great Charles Bukowski as my mantra. He said, become what you love, then let it destroy you. And <laughs> that's what I did. I always, with everything I did, I would, if I liked something, I would let it become me and that would be my life and I would do it to every you know every bit of of energy that I had left in my body to the best of my ability wow. and 
that's that's what I did for four years. I put everything I had into becoming a pro wrestler, no matter what people told me. Everyone said I was too small, uh, not athletic mm-hmm. enough, or just mm-hmm. dumb, or it was a dumb idea, you know. But I I went through with it, and honestly, I got really far. I got I got further than I even thought I probably would have when I first started out on the adventure. Now, get uh, Jay, ask your question. You're gonna say something. Oh. So, well, because, uh, you know, when we when you first found Matt and, and you kind of introduced us and we inst- and we messaged through Instagram, of course, he told me who trained him. But I-, I want Matt to tell us, because when he said when he told me and he told you who his trainer was, I was blown away because it's a guy we talk about a lot. And it's one of our favorite wrestlers. So, Matt, you got to say who trained you? How did you find him? Where was his school? Just 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 okay. go for it. I got it. <laughs> The man of a thousand holds, the, yes! great, the great Dean Malenko was my mentor, my teacher, and yes, he even called me son once. Therefore, I, I, I can call him father in quotes. Uh, he, nice. he, he was he he took care of me uh, more than anyone in those four years. He he watched over me. He did everything he could to nurture me and to train me. And he was a good person. He was the one of the greatest, you know, people that I met, not only in that industry but in my life. He did so much to help me. He gave me his his trunks. He gave me his outfits from when he wrestled in all Japan with his brother Joe. Um, he gave me a lucha a lucha libra outfit uh, that he wore. I believe when he he was uh, up against Jericho um, in WCW, he had to wear uh, a Cyclope outfit, and he. Uh, he gave me that. Uh, wow. So yeah, I mean, and, and the people that I met through him, through you know, knowing him was, you know, it's like a who's who of wrestling. Luna Vachon, Gangrel, Eddie Guerrero, uh, Jeff Bradley, who was the original Dudley, who created the Dudley Boys. Uh, just the list goes on and on of the people I got to meet, and and it was amazing. It was a, an amazing adventure. Now, Matt, how old was Dean Malenko when at this time? And- with you, is he in his thirties? He's kind of like yes, yeah. He was in his late thirties, so he was about I want to say he was about thirty-seven. Uh, this was like 90, 1995, and he was about thirty-seven. He had just gotten married um, uh, to his wife, um, so he was changing his his life as my life was changing. His was too. He was entering a new life uh, because before he was traveling to Japan every month. Uh, mm-hmm. Going on tour with New Japan, and I mean that that takes a lot out of you physically and mentally. There's not much you know you have after that, and uh, that was always my dream. You know, I always wanted to go to Japan, following his footsteps, um, and and you know, going back to the, how I first saw him and and first met yeah. him uh, when I was at the ECW arena. Um, you know, I would watch the local guys wrestle, and you know, it was good for blood and guts. Uh, but when Dean, when I first saw Dean wrestle, he and Benoit were the, the tag team champions. I was there the night they beat Public Enemy for the tag titles. Mm-hmm. And that was like an epiphany. You know, watching them carry Public Enemy to a four-star match. And these guys, when I saw them up close as they were walking down the aisle, they were my height. So everybody, you know, telling me I was too short, this, that, you know, guys my height couldn't make it in wrestling. That all was proven wrong when I saw this. Now, who, so, can you, who was the public enemy again? 
uh, a Flyboy, Rocco, Rock, and Johnny Grunge. Johnny Grunge. Yes. Johnny Grunge <laughs> was the one that wasn't a great worker. But Rocco Rock was a good worker. He was known as being a good worker. Uh, just very bitter. Didn't like uh, younger guys coming up uh, like most veteran wrestlers. Uh, but they were known as being the, the top tag team at the time for ECW. Um, and then they left soon afterwards. Uh, but Dean and Chris Benoit would come in with Eddie Guerrero. They were known as like kind of like a three musketeers. Uh, they were known as like the greatest workers, you know, on, on the smaller side, the greatest cruiserweights that were pound for pound, you know, around in that time period from Japan to WCW to ECW. They were three of the greatest Oh, oh, I mean, there's no denying that. And I mean, Pete and I have talked about those three gentlemen like extensively on, on a yeah. lot of our past episodes. Um, and I think that's one of the things is I know Pete's not as much of a fan as ECW as I was. And a lot of people thought of it as like, you know, hardcore, hardcore, hardcore. But yes. they also had a lot of great technical guys. The three guys you just mentioned, I'm thinking yes. uh, Jerry Lynn is like a fourth one. Um, as you, I mean, it's it's a Taz. Oh my God! Yeah, Taz, Taz was was phenomenal. Did you get to meet him? Uh, unfortunately, I did not. Um, I, I, he opened as as coincidence would have it. You know, mm -hmm. everything happens for a reason. He opened up a wrestling school one month after I left the Philadelphia area for Tampa to go to Dean's, and wow. that was it's it's ironic because that was the reason I went to Dean's was so that I could be trained by Dean, learn his style, his technique and then come back to ECW with that scientific style, not a brawler and a, and, a, and a blood and guts kind of guy. But it was funny, as soon as I left, that's when Taz opened his dojo in Philadelphia. <laughs> you know, it was really ironic. So, wow. Matt, uh, so uh, I was going to ask you this. I have like um, have so many questions that are like all yeah, yeah, yeah. flying all over the place. Um, yeah, yeah. We were talking at your store the one day, and, and Jake mentioned how ECW has that reputation of being blood and guts. And you were telling me a story about one of the wrestlers, and what can you, uh, you know, go about the cutting and stuff like that? Can you go through that? Oh, uh, uh, blading, yeah. I mean, it's a com it was a common practice um, in the in the old days. Uh, uh, the kayfabe's done now, which means you know you can. There's no more secrets in pro wrestling. No. Like, pro wrestling used to be very secretive, very guarded. Uh, like, literally, it was Dusty Rhodes even called it. It was like the mafia. You didn't talk about it. You, It was kept secret. Every, all of their secrets, you know, were kept a secret from fans. Like, you were an exclusive club. Uh, it, 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 was, it was a cult of sorts. And it's only within the past 10 years that really fans have become educated to really what's going on. I'm sure the internet has played a big part in that, that and the sheets, uh, Dave Meltzer and, and, you know, those who came after him. But before that, I mean, there's a lot of places in the South that truly believe pro wrestling was real up to the, the mid 1980s. Uh, it was legit. It was, and, and there were riots, there were huge riots that were caused mostly in the South uh, because of pro wrestling, the heels getting so much heat, the, the entire stadium would riot and try to kill the heels and they would stab them and beat them with bats. And some promoters had to carry guns to, to, you know, to ward off these people. Uh, Bobby Heenan's known to have been attacked uh, when he was with the black, when he was managing the blackjacks on AWA. Uh, they caused a full scale riot uh, in Wisconsin, I believe. 
uh, and they they would they took the blackjacks uh, took with uh, many of the fans in the back and beat them so that they would tell everybody that it was real and that this is what happens when you cause a riot. But it was it was legit back then. But uh, as that as that as that went further, uh, you know, it, it became more open and and now it's pretty much you know common knowledge what goes on. But back to the the process of bleeding. Uh, you know, they would break off a piece of uh, razor blade, tape it up, uh, keep it in their trunks. And uh, when it was time uh, to get some heat, get some color, you know, they would slice their foreheads. And back in the 60s and 70s, this was common practice to the point where guys like Flair and Dusty were doing it twice a day. They were bleeding <laughs> twice a day and no stitches. They were just bleeding, wrapping a towel around their head, driving to the next spot, driving to the next territory doing it all over again. Like they would bleed twice a day, almost seven days a week. So uh, when I got to actually uh, wrestle on the old uh, Florida Sportatorium uh, wrestling uh, canvas, the old uh, mat they still had, oh, uh, it, wow. was, it was covered literally in Dusty's blood. Like <laughs> you could see it, all the blood splattered all over. It was a canvas of blood. Oh my God. And that's the way the rings looked back then. Whenever you watch old matches, uh, you know, they were, they were, they were stained with blood. Uh, that was how you got your heat. And, uh, you know, that was back before a lot of the, you know, the, the blood transmitted diseases were, were common knowledge, you know, back right. then it was just, it wasn't regarded like it is today. It was, it was just, you know, it was just a part of their culture. It was a part of their lifestyle. And that's what you did. Like if you didn't, if you didn't blade as a wrestler, Chances are you wouldn't probably get work. Um, wow. how many, yeah, the, I don't know of many old school wrestlers that never bladed. But Dean taught me. Dean was was of old school, but also he had new philosophies in that he didn't believe you needed to bleed to be a good wrestler. Mm-hmm. And he always taught us that, you know, it's not something you should make a habit of. It, you know, it is necessary for, you know, certain styles and certain promotions but don't make a habit of it because if you do, promoters will expect that of you every night. You will be expected to blade every night, and mm-hmm. that's not how you want to look. You know, when you're my age, you know, I <laughs> I, I, I got to meet guys uh, like the great Steve Kern, um, who again was my height, and uh, I got to meet him about a week after being in Tampa. And mm-hmm. the first, the first thing I noticed was his forehead from the years of blading. And it, it, it's, it's horrific when you see it up close. Uh, you're like, wow, like I, I don't want my forehead to look like, like a purple cabbage when I'm old. You know? <laughs> uh, but that's, yeah. that, that's, what, that's what happens when you, you know, when you cut yourself with a razor blade every night for decades. Wow. Uh, so I, I avoided that. And, and again, cool. you know, it's not something I looked forward to. Uh, so <laughs> Dean only made it you know, more acceptable to, to pretty much you know, not, not try it at all. So Matt, let me ask you. So you, you get down to Tampa, uh, you, you get into Dean Malenko's school. Take us through it. What was like a typical day like uh, training with legendary Dean Malenko? Um, it was it was very hard um, because at the time um, I was struggling to try to live on my own. I had never at that age of twenty, I had never lived on my own before, um, and just driving to Tampa without knowing anybody, without having a place to live, was tough. It was really tough. Um, I had to live in a motel, uh, like a Roach Motel, right on Dale Mabry Highway um, in Tampa, in a bad section of Tampa. 
um, and try to support myself by working at night at Walmart. Um, literally for months, I was living out of a motel. Um, so that added to me, you know, struggling in the ring, you know, trying to trying to do this really physical uh, workouts, um, you know, and then trying to work at night and get only a couple hours sleep. It was almost impossible. So I really struggled from the beginning, uh, you know, more mentally so than physically, uh, just trying to concentrate on everything. And Dean was very elaborate. Dean wanted things done a certain way. He was very Japanese in his, in his training method. Um, he was very methodical. You know, he could be very serious and very stern. He had a great uh, sense of, of humor. But when he was mad, he would let you know. And when you when he thought you weren't performing uh, to your best abilities, he would really let you know. Wow. Yeah, it was it was it was uh, I, I look <laughs> back and I laugh now. But at the time, it was terrifying because here's my idol. And I felt like I was letting him down, you know, whenever I couldn't do yeah. something. It, it, it was it was heartbreaking almost, you know, it's like it's like you're being taught by Bruce Lee and, and you know, you can't do any of the moves, you know, and, and he's, he's yelling at you because he wants you to succeed. You know, Dean, th that was the thing. Dean told everybody that he wanted me to succeed. He told everybody I knew, you know, all, all of his like substitute teachers that would would uh, take over for him when he was on the road. Uh, these these guys, they, they told me in confidence, they're like, look, Dean, don't give up because Dean wants you to succeed he really believes in you and, and you know we know you're having a, a tough time at this but you need to hang in there because dean believes in you and he's going to help you you know get ahead in this uh so it was more mentally taxing to me than physically mm. uh but i mean i just i kept at it um you know i, I just did my best and i learned um to just kind of compensate for the things that i couldn't do i couldn't do a lucha libre style I right. couldn't do top rope, uh, you know, the fast pace, the fast spots. I couldn't, I just couldn't do them. So I concentrated on more of like a Steve Regal uh, catch as catch can style, European, you know, <clears> not <throat> even doing any spots, just going hold for hold with guys. Steve Regal, that, that's um, that's Jay's favorite wrestler. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I Steve like Regal. Or Steven Regal. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> tremendous, tremendous uh, technical wrestler. One of the greatest. I mean, he... He, his style was so much like Dean's, but yet had a different type of European uh, flair to it. Uh, as, as far as I remember, Dean, you know, Dean was very good friends with him and said that I think he grew up in a circus. He was an orphan and grew up in a circus at a very young age and had to not only wrestle, you know, under a tent in a circus, in, you know, travel around in England, mm -hmm. but had to had to be in like real like MMA type fights against uh, you know, like like uh, customers who would come in and say they could beat you. You know, they would put money down, or you know, the marks as they would call you. And, right. And Regal, as a teenager, would have to fight these guys in real in real matches, like real UFC type matches. That sounds like wow. my life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, with your uncles that's, there. That's right. Yes. And the struggles <laughs> of e living in EB. <laughs> yeah. But but you know what I tell people about you know lifestyles like like that and like people that struggle and have these these tough upbringings, mm -hmm. you know, what, what do they say? Uh, diamonds come from rough beginnings, and usually the tougher that that somebody's beginnings is, that means they're just going to be that much tougher throughout life, and if they have a little bit of compassion. They can keep that compassion even when they're they go through you know any type of abuse or you know anything you know really bad in their childhood. If they can keep some of that compassion and try to pass it on 
to kids or, or to younger people along the way, then that's what defines them. And, and that's what makes, you know, the world a better place. And that's what Dean did with me. Wow. Yeah. So, awesome. so what, what was like your biggest match? I mean, is that one of the questions, Jay, you want to ask him? <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I got a ton of questions. So, right, don't, so don't worry about what, it. <laughs> we, can, we can fast forward to my greatest match uh, as far as, well, I would, I would say, honestly, I'll give two matches that stand out as, as my best. Uh, one, one involved uh, Dave Heath, who is known as Gangrel, who still, uh, he's a little bit older than me, and he runs a wrestling school and still uh, operates, he still wrestles full-time uh, down in Florida. Wow. I used to and, like him when he was with uh, Edge and Christian. Yes, and I was always jealous of the of Edge and Christian as I felt, that was my time, and I felt like, I was good friends with Dave right before he went to WWE. I mean, we literally, we lived together. He lived right, he and Luna lived right below me. I lived above in the garage and they mm-hmm. lived right, right next to it, next to the garage um, in Dunedin, Florida. And, and Luna was like my mother at that time. And Dave was my best friend and we traveled together and, you know, they took me under their wing. And uh, so I was a little jealous because <laughs> I felt like that should be me, you know. But I think that's only natural, you know. It was sure. only natural. But um, the, my my first night uh, that I had a taste, a little taste uh, of of stardom was March uh, 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had been in the business uh, only about two, a little bit. I think a year and a half at that point. I was 22. Uh-huh. Uh, I was I was in the crowd at St. Petersburg. I think I helped put up the ring. It was a Cuban assassin show. Um, uh, Steve Kern was also I think Steve Kern was the booker for the show or something in in St. Pete. Uh, but Dave, uh, who was known um, as one half of the Blackhearts um, at that time, okay, uh, he, he and his partner uh, Barry Houston, who was actually I think the second version of the Blackhearts. Um, as as he as Tom Nash and Dave were known as the original Blackhearts, and Tom Tom Nash was actually Luna's uh, first husband, um, and then there was a fight that broke out, and eventually Dave uh, became the husband of Luna. So that was a wow. whole problem. Yes, yeah. <laughs> wow. But, and that's funny in wrestling, and it, that happens a lot. There's there's a lot of uh, real life drama that goes on. As we got to see later on with like Nancy Benoit and Nancy Chris, Benoit that and Chris, yeah, yes. That happens a lot. I mean, not to that level, but there's a lot of behind the scenes, you know, soap opera type stuff that goes on behind, you know, closed doors in wrestling mm-hmm. that you don't, you know, you don't always hear about. But I was seeing firsthand, you know, I was a part of, you know, uh, but yeah, go ahead. Go <laughs> no, ahead. I was going to say, you mentioned all these guys and I know Jay knows all these wrestlers, but like, <laughs> with the two of you guys talking, I'm like, wow, I know nothing about wrestling at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, no. don't be sorry. Don't be sorry, we all have, sorry. We always have different levels, but you know, it's just wrestling is just like anything else. It's it's a version of storytelling, and it, you know, you're telling a story mm-hmm. in a ring, and you're watching a story like you're watching a movie. You know, so it's like you know, okay, we well, only saw a couple movies or a couple wrestling shows. That's fine. You know, you understood it and you appreciated the drama and the passion that went with it. You know, absolutely. That's why a lot of these old timers would be legit angry when people would would tell them it was fake you know because these were guys who were literally killing themselves they couldn't you know move they couldn't get out of bed because of the bumps they took in the ring 
and they have these jabronis telling them that it's not real and that what they're doing is fake and and anybody could do it off the street you know and that's they're going to take that personally you sure. know it's, uh, understandable but back to the my one my first real big break and one of my biggest nights i was in the crowd um watching this show this indie show a couple mm-hmm. hundred people um, and the main event was going to be the Blackhearts against these guys called the Playboys, who are these huge guys, these convicts, uh, who were nice guys to me. They trained at the school now, and again, they were old students, I think of Boris, Boris Malenko, uh, but they were tough guys. They were legit tough guys who could have just beaten me in a second, uh, and I was, <laughs> I was nobody. You know, I was just this young kid, uh, you know, young kid just starting out, and um, uh, my, my uh, landlord at the time and one of the student teachers at the Malenko School, a guy named Mike Marcello, uh, whose house I lived at, uh, he came out in the crowd and got me, and he said, um, he said, I have a surprise for you. So come on in the back. And so I went in the back, and there mm-hmm. was Dave sitting there with a black card outfit, and they, the two of them sat me down, and they let me know that Barry Houston wasn't going to show that night, that he just called and said he wasn't going to make it, and that they needed a second black card to, to pull off the main event, and that out of everybody there, even including the workers that were in the back room that wanted to be a black heart, Dave picked me out in the crowd. Wow. Wow. And that, to me, was the one of the greatest honors ever in my life. I, 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 I was terrified, you know, beyond belief. Because sure. I had, no, I had no preparation for this. I had no, I had, I think I had like 20 minutes to get dressed and go over the match. And I had only had, I think, three matches, maybe four matches, pro matches at that point, um, as it was just, just hard with my schedule of working, just trying to make a living uh, to do, you know, to do matches on the side. And, uh, mm-hmm. but, but Dave picked me, you know, whether it was because of, you know, my heart or my drive, uh, or he disliked me as a person, I don't know, but or he, he picked Yes, that, that too. <laughs> and that's sometimes what happens in wrestling. But, well, the thing that was in my favor was, unlike the other cruiserweights at the school, I was a little bit bigger that I could get away with being a heavyweight. I would, you know, gotcha. the, other guys, the other guys I worked with were like, like Rey Mysterio type sizes. Mm. Uh, they're tiny guys, and I was the I based for them. I was the heel that held them up as they did the Frankensteiners and all the you know spin type lucha moves. Sure. Um, but I could work unlike you know I could work with the heavyweights. And I think Dave liked that, and he liked that I, that I did a Japanese style, uh, you know, like I was saying about the Steve Regal style, mm-hmm. you know, you know the submission style stuff, suplexes. Uh, Dean used to call me um, the most flexible wrestler he ever met in his life and simply loved the suplexes I did. That uh, sounds a little kinky, Matt. We don't need to know No, 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 no. <laughs> when, you, when, when you see, whenever you watch uh, Japanese wrestling, um, they have Northern Light Suplex, Fisherman Suplex is what Mr. Perfect used to use. Yeah. It all involves a bridge, and you have to have a tremendous bridge to perform these suplexes. It's not <clears> just throwing a guy in the air. Um, and you have to literally land on the on your forehead. You have to bridge back and land on your forehead without your hands. And you have to practice this for months before you can even attempt the suplex. Right. Um, so I, Dean worked with me to perfect that again. He knew that I wasn't going to do a lucha style, so so he he got around that and, and my weaknesses and and focused on my my positives, which was my flexibility. Mm. So then I was able to work on all these different suplexes, kind of like not to the level of Taz. I would never compare myself to Taz, 
but of that that type of character where he was known as being a master of suplexes. Um, that was kind of my gimmick. You know, that was my finisher. And I just mm-hmm. I learned to perfect them to the point where I remember I tried a, a real uh, 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 I tried a suplex I'd never done before on, on a friend. And, you know, I just I, I we both did the best we could. But in the end, you know, the, the guy got knocked out for a bit, which Ooh. is what happens in, in, you know, in wrestling. Sure. You, know, you don't mean to do it, but it happens. You get knocked out a lot, you know, a lot of concussions. But Dean said afterwards that it was the sickest looking suplex he had ever seen in his life. So what, that, what, that what kind of suplex was it? Um, it was. It didn't have a name. I saw it on a Japanese. I want to say it was like Pancreas or uh, UW, the old UWF shoot promotion eighties, right. where you grab. I think I saw Taz do it once. You grab a guy's head and do uh, a Northern Light suplex, but you have to land on your forehead while taking the guy over, and he. But, but you're holding his arm so he can't catch himself. Um, and you bridge the whole way. You don't throw him. You bridge and land on your forehead first. So it's very complex. Oh. And oh wow! Up, yeah, yeah. It ended that's... up with the gu- with me landing on the guy's head and knocking him unconscious oh, for a little bit. Wow! But it looked great. They said they said it looked great. And in wrestling, sometimes that's all that really matters. Exactly. But back, back to the back to the Blackheart uh, incident. Mm-hmm. So we were in the main event, my first ever main event, and uh, um, you know we went over what we were going to do uh, very quickly. You know the finish. Um, Dave, you know, just tried to calm me down, and and you know he saw that I was nervous. And we just went out there. Unfortunately, Luna wasn't with us that night. She would have been managing us. Um, but she, I think, had just started with WCW at that point, uh, wrestling Medusa. Um, so uh, we had to go out, I think, by ourselves. Um, and then when they put the... I, I wear uh, glasses, thick glasses. So obviously I couldn't wear them in the ring. I didn't have contacts. So when I put this mask on my head, I literally, I was almost blind. So Dave almost had to lead me to the ring. And wow. when, yeah, and when we got there, it was just this rush of adrenaline. Uh, you know, hearing the crowd, you know, the announcer announcing you, you know, knowing that you're in the main event for the work that you know the tag team titles, you're going up against these these huge guys. It was like something out of a movie. You know, it was something. It was it was an amazing. It was very surreal. And so you know, I went in there. You know, Dave started the match. I went in there. You know, threw some suplexes and some kicks. But then these guys, you know, they cut me off. They were twice my size, and they didn't they didn't want me to shine. And I honestly, I was the heel, so you know, and they had a lot of their family there, so I really shouldn't be getting too much heat. So they just pretty much put a good beating on me, and they were throwing some legit punches and kicks. And all you can do in that situation is just take it. You know, these guys are my are are veterans. They're leading me in the ring. I'm just going to follow. I'm just going to take a beating. And that's that's the way wrestling is. And a lot of people don't realize yeah. that. They call them shoots. That happens a lot in wrestling. Like, it's just guys going off the script and not liking if another guy is doing something wrong or a younger guy is doing something wrong. And they're going to throw something in that's real to kind of knock some sense into them. Mm. You know? And it's called a shoot. And honestly, yeah. there was a lot of that in wrestling. There was a lot of shoots in wrestling. Uh, but in the end... Oh, yeah. In the end, uh, Dave made sure that I got the win. Um, I pinned one of the guys for the tag titles, and for that one night, I was a tag team champion. Oh, that's cool. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah, 
Jay, what's your next? What, what else you? Jay, there's so many questions to ask. Go yeah, for it. Yeah, no, I got, I got plenty of them. I, so Matt, let me ask you. So when you were when you were training with Dean Malenko, I mean, obviously he he gets you in physical shape. He he works on your moves, but did he also work on you with like cutting promos and like generating that heat when you're in the ring, like the storytelling? Like was was that also part of your training? Uh, storytelling was that was that, that ring psychology was what they always termed it as. And honestly, that was one thing that I excelled at because I studied it for so long. I was literally a student of it in that, you know, back then we had the VHS tapes. I heard you guys joking about VHS tapes on another podcast uh, <laughs> kind of showing my age. Why? But, is there something else that we that's out there? Yes. <laughs> but but, you know. I mean, I, that's all I did as a kid. I just watched VHS tapes. And then later on in the late 80s, as we started to get some Japanese stuff over here, mm. that's when everything really started changing. We're like, wow, like, look at this stuff they're doing over there. This is like totally different. And and, and when you get to see it, it's like going to the Louvre to see uh, uh, artwork. It's it's yeah. it, it, it takes you to another level. It takes you to another place and another form. Matt, and don't so educate I, us with other things, okay? Sorry, stick, sorry. I don't want to add too much culture. Stick to the nerd and wrestling. Yeah, don't, don't culture. Add, I don't add too much culture here. Uh, but anyway, but so, yeah. you know, I studied I studied wrestling uh, for a long time, you know, different forms of it from all over the world and, you know, appreciated every form. So when I got to Dean's, I was pretty much, I was ready for that part. Uh, there's a certain mm-hmm. part, you know, that you're, you're telling a story and Dean even tells you that. When you're in the ring with a guy, you're telling a story. Uh, if, if you're the guy that's leading the match, you're carrying the match and you're calling the spots. It's usually the guy that has the most time or the heel. And he's the guy, you know, basically he's leading the dance. And mm. you're, you're telling the story. And Dean always made sure to tell you this. Don't let the crowd control you. You controlled the crowd. You're the puppet master. And wow. You, <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing the things that he taught. It was you know, when to get heat, uh, you know, when it was time for the for the baby face to get heat, you know, the good guy, when mm-hmm. it was time for the heel to, you know, cut him off. You know, there was a lot of psychology that went with it. It wasn't just running spots like you see today. It's funny, um, it's funny how you talk about how Dean and all these things that he does. But when you watch yeah. it on TV, it didn't. He's so like it looks like he's laid back, like a laid yes. back guy. Yes. And I, I heard I remember watching an interview with J.J. Dillon uh, at the time. Um, or maybe later on, and say that Dean showed no facial expressions. He made everything look so easy. Mm, he did. It looked effortless. And that's what it was to Dean. It was at wrestling. He had wrestled from such a young age and had gotten so good. It was it was just like second nature to him. He, he just, you know, he was taught his father. You know, he was second generation. He wrestled with his brother. He wrestled with the great Carl Gotch, who taught a lot of shoot fighting in Japan. Um, started a lot of MMA that became UFC, and Dean immersed himself in all that to the point where it was just second nature to him. And you know, that's why he got so frustrated with me. It wasn't; it was very hard for me to try to do it, and and he couldn't understand because it was because, like I said, it was second nature to second him. Second nature to him. Yeah, but yeah, but, but telling a story to me was easy. Um, I could go in there and tell a story, you know, very easily. We could do comedy. We could do, you know. Once I got to the level um, in the school that, you know, we were having practice matches, um, you know, that's when things started changing for me. And I started getting, you know, a better idea of who I was going to be wrestling wise, character wise, and what my abilities were and what my strengths and weaknesses were. 
And that's when I really started growing. Uh, but yeah, Dean <laughs> taught us a lot. Dean taught us a lot in and out of the ring. Did you, did you pattern yourself after anybody out there? You know, like you said, you studied a lot. So yeah. was there one or two wrestlers that you, you would look at and say, I love that style. I, I really want to try to emulate it or, or do something with that. Yes, definitely. Uh, Dean, Dean definitely was my number one, uh, uh, you know, influenced, uh, then would be like Chris Benoit, um, Eddie, the late great Eddie Guerrero. Uh, he was also there. Uh, he was another, he was, he was another inspiration. Uh, I, I, I was it, another thing was, uh, Eddie who was Dean's best friend moved to Tampa right after a couple months after I got there. And they were actually talking of, of renaming it the, the Malenko Guerrero wrestling Academy. And we had two rings there. One was going to be Lucha where Eddie taught. The other was going to be where Dean taught. And I had broken my hand. I broken my wrist in a match against a 300 pound guy who took me over and snapped my wrist in half at that same time. So I had to watch all of this, everybody being trained by, by one of my idols, Eddie Guerrero, as I just stood there with a broken hand. So that was hard. That was really yeah. hard. Uh, but it was great, you know, seeing all these guys up close and watching Dean and Eddie have matches right there in the, at the school when we were done. I would just, I'd be, I'd be right there. I'd be ringside watching this. Jay, Jay's about to fall over with jealousy. Um, I, I, I am so, I mean, I, I'm in such awe, and I, yeah. I, I am incredibly jealous because, you know, I mean, the names you're throwing out there. I mean, these are yeah. guys that I watch, and even I used to, like I was huge fans of these guys. You know, especially. I would probably say I was more of a fan of Benoit, but I was a big fan of Dean Malenko, so much so that I forget what year it was. He was Pro Wrestling Illustrated's like wrestler of the year, number one. And people 97. were like what what year was it? Nineteen ninety seven. I was there when he, he had the magazine at the school. Yeah. And we were made we made a whole day of it. It was awesome. It was Dean was laughing it up, and we were saying how he was voted the greatest wrestler in the world. And yeah. Dean's like, Dean goes, you know, this is all work. He goes, you know, Pro Wrestling <laughs> Illustrated, this is just a work because there isn't a real, you know, voting or anything. There's a bunch of edit editors sitting around Bill Apter deciding who's going to get what, you know. But, yeah, but we people, people we would argue with me. But yeah, people yeah. would argue with me about it, saying yeah. like, "Well, who is this guy?" And I said, yeah. "Watch him in the ring, and you'll see who he is." <laughs> Amen to that. He could. I mean, nobody could. You know, nobody could hold his jock strap when it came to work in the ring. Um, you know, microphone wise, you know, he wasn't the Rock, but he would. He would. <laughs> you know, and and that was the difference in wrestling. Like it didn't matter how good you were technically. It meant, you know, on the skills on the mic was was more unfortunately more important. Um, and, and that, that was one thing that kind of, you know, I thought about if I was going to make a life of this, you know, like, do I really want to have my whole career be in the hands of, of the crowd, you know, whether they like my interviews or not, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are in the ring, you know, it matters if you can get over, you, you can get a crowd going, you know? So, um, yeah, I re I do remember that when he got, I was right there at the school when we first found out and. That that was definitely one of our our uh, most comedic moments as a school. <laughs> so Matt, on our show, as you know, and you've listened to it, we do a lot of top fives, okay, and yeah. top tens, uh, yes. and we're gonna get back to your story. But I had a question. You yes. Know, Jay and I have gone through our favorite, our top five wrestlers of all yes. time. Yes. Uh, you want to give us kind of like a taste of like your favorite top five wrestlers? 
Uh, I'll just I'll go into my first uh, would definitely be Nature Boy Ric Flair. Um, oh, of course, you know, <laughs> not only one of the greatest workers of all time, one of the greatest interviews of all time. I mean, and and what made him so great was he lived his character. You know, he was Ric Flair. Uh, and he couldn't, he couldn't separate the two. He was that character. You know, he went out all night and he was Ric Flair everywhere, you know, and the four horsemen were formed basically around him. Uh, there would be no, without him, there would be no four horsemen. And, uh, to me that started, the four horsemen started all of the different groups that, that, that became, you know, from them, uh, DX and, and everybody else, um, But the four horsemen to me were just the pinnacle. Uh, they were the greatest. Um, you know, watching them as a teenager, I was I, I was in awe. You know, watching their interviews and then watching them. You know, getting a fight with Dusty and the Road Warriors, Sting, Luger, Magnum, TA, Midnight Express. You know, those. I still remember those days. I still remember vividly those days. Yeah, they were the best stable of all time. I there's yes. no doubt. Yes, in my opinion, yes. Uh, like I've told you before, I can't watch the wrestling today just because that's no. what I grew up with that, you know, old school NWA, you know, mid 80s, late 80s, uh, which I mean, I'm sorry, it has it, it, it has nothing to do with the with the, the wrestling today. Um, you mean you don't like the Miz? No, I mean, <laughs> I, honestly, I can't say like I just I stopped. I stopped altogether. I just stopped watching. Uh, uh, the, the after the Chris Benoit incident, I I quit watching altogether. Never watched another yeah. show after that. Um, the Owen Hart death uh, caused me pretty much to walk away from pro wrestling as an active wrestler, mm-hmm. and then the Chris Benoit incident caused me to end my you know my my rest being a wrestling fan as far as watching the current product. No, okay. So yeah, there, there's a lot of tragedies in wrestling. Uh, you know that that I mean, you know, like like all of these these young deaths that go on. I mean, they started around the mid '90s. You know, during that the, the heyday of Nitro and and Raw and ECW, and you know, it came from recreational drug use and from the fact a lot of people don't realize the amount of pain that wrestlers are in every day, the amount of painkillers that these wrestlers have to take just to be able to walk around and to take these crazy bumps that they do. Um, it's, it's not healthy. And, and I don't know what the, I'm sure the level today is, is much better. Um, it looks like they're, you know, you know, the McMahons have really turned things around as far as taking care of the wrestlers, you know, sending them to rehab or letting them take off. Um, so wrestling has become a lot better. I think in that aspect, as far as drugs, uh, but, I know in the '90s, you know, it was heavy. It was it it was a heavy drug use time. And you mentioned um, when you first started, like Eddie Gilbert. Were you yes. uh, were you around when he passed? Um, I I got to meet Eddie Gilbert at the ECW arena. He was selling. Uh, in fact, the last appearance he made there, he but when Paul Heyman took over his booking job, he was selling T-shirts, and I just you know went up to him, introduced myself, shook his hand. Um, you know, said what a big fan I was. Um, and Eddie, again, was not a tall guy uh, and, you know, was the main yeah. eventer there. You know, main evented a Texas uh, a death chain match with Terry Funk 
where you know oh we, wow yeah we were, we, <laughs> it was blood was literally being sprayed all over the building like they're beating each other with the chain covered in blood and it was wild it was blood and guts but eddie was also a great technical wrestler and he was a great talker and again seeing a guy that was my height and seeing him excel at this business gave me hope and confidence that i could somehow do it as well so yeah, Eddie Gilbert was definitely in my in my top five uh, most influential wrestlers. Um, so like I said, Ric Flair, Eddie Gilbert, um, another tag team. That I heard you guys talk about last uh, one of the episodes, the Midnight Express, uh, one of the greatest tag teams of all time. So underrated. They were they did things in the ring that were, you know would never been duplicated. You know their their style. Their you know. That style has never been duplicated and, and never will be again. And then Cornette being their mouthpiece made them all the better. Um, I, I would hold them up to any tag team in history. And great um, theme song. Great. Yes. Oh, the, oh yeah. yeah. I even heard uh, Ricky Morton uh, in a shoot interview uh, years ago say he got goosebumps when he was waiting in the ring for the Midnights to come in and he heard their theme song. He said he would get goosebumps and he would just say, this is it. Like, it's on, you know? Like, you know, that's that's when everybody turns it up a notch. And that's when, you know, you take it to another level in the ring is when, you know, when you get excited. You know, you can tell when a wrestler is excited to be there. That is when, you know, they call his working boots are on. And the, the midnights, their working boots were on every night. Absolutely. We're learning terms today, Jay. This is yes. awesome. <laughs> yes. Like I said, I... I you know, so much happened to me. I had to write two books, and um, you know, never the, the the memoir that focused on the wrestling uh, never got published. It's, it's there someday. I'm gonna I'm gonna get it published when I have, have more time to work on it. Probably in my 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 older years, my retirement maybe when I can <laughs> you know look back like like Bilbo Baggins on my on my long adventure. Um, but right now I've got, you know, a lot of other things on my plate, but, uh, I did uh, self publish my second book, uh, which was called the butcher's son, uh, which was more of a, um, it's, it's fiction, but based on my childhood, the first 20 years of my life mm -hmm. and then leads and then leads into me becoming a pro wrestler in the second book. Wow. Uh, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Jay, ask a question. Uh, yeah, no, I was definitely going to ask, um, who do you think was like the best booker that you uh, that you ever worked with? Uh, that I worked with as a wrestler, or, or that I saw on TV? Uh, that you worked with as a wrestler. Um, that's a, that's a tough one because I didn't get to any. You know, I, I never got to a high <laughs> level as far as you know a worker. I never got to you know ECW or WCW. Um, so I just saw stuff at an indie level. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I would have to say, like, you know, Dean, with, with his mind, he had a great mind. He would have made a great booker. And I know um, that, you know, later on in his years when he retired from active duty, he became uh, an agent with WWE. Um, I never got to talk to him during that time period, but I'm sure that's exactly what he was doing. He was he was behind the scenes basically booking, but, but it was just called something different where he – he dealt with talent, and he went over uh, um, the finishes for everything. Um, you know, he would go to guys and say, okay, this is what you're going to do in this match, and you're going to do this and this and this, you know, spot A, spot B, and that's what Dean excelled at. So, in a way, I, I think I would, from my experience, from my point of view, I would say Dean was my favorite booker. Who is the best booker in, in 
wrestling. Of all, of all time, don't say I, Kevin Nash. Yeah, no, Kevin Nash not. definitely is. Definitely not. No, I would say Paul Heyman. Uh, God, Paul yeah. Heyman. He he. Like I said before, he created a culture. ECW wasn't a wrestling company; it was a culture, and to the point where their on their billboards that they hung. There was no matches on it. They put wrestlers' names, but there was no matches advertised. You would go to these shows and not know what you were going to see. You were going for the ECW experience. You were going to become part of the ECW. You know, it was it was a it was a movement. It was a um, it was something that you had to belong. You had to become a part of, like like a concert. You know, uh, so the wrestlers were just you know interchangeable. I mean, they were very important, but Paulie was the one. He was the mad scientist that concocted that and he used uh, things that nobody else had tried before in wrestling and but then he also used old school things that had worked in wrestling so i i think in my opinion he was the greatest booker of all time jay have you ever been to an ecw event Live ECW? no that is that is one of the regrets i mean i would see it on tv I, I had never been to one live but what i read about paul Heyman, they just said like if the guy knew how to manage money who knows what the, the face of wrestling or the shape of wrestling would be like today? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, and, and he changed in, in his few short years that they were around. They literally changed the landscape of wrestling. We would not have, I truly believe, we would not have wrestling uh, in its form if, the way we see it now if it wasn't for ECW. If you look at WWF as it was at the time, they were so stuck in a rut. Oh God! Yeah, in mid nineties, that was the worst time period ever for wrestling. For for you know, and WCW as well before Nitro. Uh, that time period was horrible. Uh, you know, it just just horrible angles. They were still trying to do a family friendly, you know, thing. The storylines were bad. Doink the clowns, you know, storylines <laughs> just terrible stuff. That's my second years. favorite wrestler of all time. Oh God! I was actually asked by Steve Kern <laughs> to be Doink uh, when I first met him. He he tried to he tried to get me to do the Doink gimmick, and I said I'm sorry. I was, I was just about to ask if you were ever one of the Doinks. <laughs> I, I was asked, and honestly, I told Mr. Kern. I said, I, Mr. Kern, I respect you so much. I respect for what you know what you've done for the business, and your and you know I know all about you. You know the fabulous ones, and uh, when you were a uh, Florida champion, you know you're. His whole, his whole, you know, his whole career, and I said, but I, I'm going to be honest with you, without offending you, I don't agree with the Doink the Clown character. I think it demeans wrestling. It takes away from the athletic uh, aspect of wrestling, and it turns it just to a sideshow. Um, it's just that so, I want to be one of the fabulous ones. <laughs> yes. Oh, he had a picture. Um, I, I met him at a Gold's Gym that he ran for Brian Blair in Tampa. And he invited me in his office, and right, right over his right over his chair of his office, a giant picture portrait uh, of he and Stan Lane at dressed up as the fabulous one, shaking oh, hands yeah. with Kenny Rogers. Oh wow! I, wow! <laughs> oh, it was the, the greatest picture I ever saw. And mm. like I said, he would he was one of those grizzled you know grizzly veterans who who could you know he could tell you some tales. You know he saw oh, some sure. old school stuff. Uh, but you know, you know, that, that, that time period was totally different, you know, and he knew like Doink the Clown, that was a type of character that, that was needed when he went later on the WWF. Now, you, we were talking at your shop, um, and we'll get into yeah. that in a couple seconds, yes. um, about 
there was a story about Doink the Clown, the clown that uh, someone said that they were the original Doink the Clown or they created the character. Yes, uh, Steve Kern claimed that he created the character and that he mm-hmm. owned the rights um, and that he could use it. And, and then he would actually uh, take wrestlers, a couple who were old Malenko students like Ricky Santana or Mark Starr, and then he would make them Doink the Clowns and I think maybe take a portion of their, you know, if they went, if they did like an indie show, their main event, then Kern would give them the outfit and then take a, maybe, you know, a percentage of that, of that cut. He, he franchised it. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah. But, and that's, that's the great, I mean, I've heard of like a lot of guys doing that. I knew the Patriot did that in the late nineties uh, when he tore his bicep or something, he sold his Patriot outfit and gimmick. Um, these guys, they live the gimmick. It's it, the gimmick, you know, I, I, Luna used to tell me all the time. She said, mm-hmm. "You know, if you want to become anybody in pro wrestling, you live the gimmick." You know, that's what Undertaker used to tell her. You know, she was good friends with the Undertaker, and that's why he's lasted so long. He lived the gimmick, like he was. That's who he was. He lived it a t- little too long. <laughs> yes, yes, but yeah, hey, but one of the longest ever. Probably. Oh, absolutely. Him and Hogan, right? Hogan, yeah. Flair, him, right? They probably have done it the longest. Yeah, but I want to say Undertaker. As far as nonstop, um, except for yeah, you know, the past few years, he's he might have the record. Um, as far as like a main event type guy, I want to say he has the record, maybe. Um, but Flair was up there. Hogan, I don't. I'm not a big fan of Hogan, even though I lived in Clearwater, like right down the street from him. Um, he, you know, I mean, when you're that type of, of entity, uh, you know, character, you know, star, movie star. You're, of course, going to get an ego, and he let that ego take over the entire company of WCW, and I believe, you know, like you were saying about Kevin Nash as a, being a booker, along with that, Hogan's ego is what took down WCW in the end. Yeah, thought about it. Did you, um, so Matt, I mean, I know you said, you know, you got to train with some of your heroes, but was there... Like, maybe an old-school hero of yours, or, or you know somebody like that that you had always wanted to meet and you did get the chance to meet? Um, I met uh, a number of stars that were on their way down. Um, mm-hmm. um, as there was a... I Jake don't know the Snake? The, no, unfortunately not Jake the Snake. I love Jake the Snake, though. Great ring psychology. I mean, you're talking one of the, one of the greatest, you know, ring psychology of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... No, I didn't get to meet, you know, I met guys like the Road Warriors who literally, like, I mean, you talk about intimidating, like, I was up to their, you know, up to their belly button, like, I was was looking up at them, you know, they were terrifying, Uh, and that was not at the peak of their career, that was at the end in 96, they were in the AWF, I don't know if you ever remember the AWF. Oh, um, oh yeah, the American Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was at their tapings. Uh, my my landlord Mike Marcello was a job guy for them, and he was trying to get me work there. But I got to meet a lot of guys back there. You know, Chris Adams, um, a couple a couple other old school guys. Uh, but yeah, but you know, getting to meet the Road Warriors, you know, guys like that that, that in my childhood I, I emulated. It was both terrifying and you know great as a, as a fan. But uh, you had it was weird because you couldn't be too much of a fan. You could, or otherwise, mm-hmm. you would just be called a mark. You know, you had yeah. to be kind of professional, kind of like an actor does. You know, yeah. uh, you you can't ask for autographs. You can't. You know, you, you you have to draw the line, kind of. 
So sure. Sure. I tried to I tried to make it business when I was uh, when I when I whenever I met wrestlers, but I I got a couple. I met a couple. I ran into a couple uh, old school guys. But like I said, I mostly just did you know independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, never made it to ECW. Um, I quit at that point. So, and then by the time I quit, you know they were going under. So um, yeah, never never got to meet a lot of my you know ECW heroes or guys like that. Did you ever get to meet Jim Cornette? <laughs> I did hear the, hear the Goods Cornette story. Oh, so, okay, good, good. So, <laughs> you, you talk, favorite manager of all time. Go for yes. it. <laughs> you talk about a guy living his gimmick. Cornette could talk and could he could tear you apart without even knowing you would you know just meeting you off the bat. Mm. Well, in Ben Salem, PA, there was a uh, Dennis Carluzzo convention in I want to say '93. So I, I was about 18, and they set up a steel cage. Uh, you know, still, you know, that was going to be the main event. They, they were going to have a convention in the, in the, you know, in the arena, and then uh, later on, they were going to have a cage, you know, wrestling show with a lot of ECW wrestlers. Taz was there, a lot of other guys, and Chris Candido, a lot of other guys. And mm-hmm. uh, but, but they actually let uh, fans pay to have matches in this steel cage, and you would get to video. They would videotape it for you. They would videotape like five minute matches, and you would pay them. I think like. I think like thirty bucks or maybe fifty bucks for two people. Wow! <laughs> me, so, so me and my friend were there, who you know both grew up like this, doing you know our backyard wrestling stuff, and we were like, "Wow, we're gonna get a chance to get in the ring, like a real ring, and not just that, a steel cage." <laughs> and we we just, it's funny. We we went with with no script, with nothing. We didn't go over anything. We right. just we we paid our money for this for this show. And we we did our five minute match in front of all the you know all the people. Chris Candido walked in front of our camera a bunch of times. Cornette was there watching it, and we pulled off. I'm not kidding. A great match out of nowhere. Right. That when I showed Dean later on, and and a bunch of other guys like Jeff Bradley, they they and even Dave, they liked me. They liked my style better when I knew nothing in this cage <laughs> match than when I was actually trained. <laughs> So that says something about the match, you know. It was it was a lot of heart. It was a lot of you know, we had a lot of heart and a lot of uh, uh, you know, a lot of passion in this. That's and great. in in the end, we went up to to Jim Cornette, who was right there watching. Right. And, and we said, Mister Cornette, uh, uh, we don't want to bother you, but what, what did you think of that match? And he looks at both of us, me and my friend, oh, and he said, he said, boys, and he put his arm around us. He goes, don't quit your day job. <laughs> well, that sums up Jim Cornette. You know, that's a great man. You know, another great booker, you know, right behind Paul Lee, in my opinion. Maybe one of the greatest, you know, right behind Bobby Heenan. I I think Mm. he's the greatest manager of all time. Uh, But he could tear you apart, you know, with just a quick, you know, a few words. But, you know. So, Matt, uh, um, I want to say something. I can't remember. I can show off and I forgot what to say. Okay. Uh, And we can go into don't quit your day job. That's right. That's why I do this at nighttime. Uh, yep. <laughs> so obviously, Matt, you've had a lot of experience with wrestling. You know a lot about wrestling. And we actually do a lot of wrestling shows. So we're hoping that you'll come back another time and talk about oh, wrestling, yeah. talk wrestling yeah. with us. Because I know, like I yeah. said, Jay's got like a book full of questions probably for yeah. you. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so now <laughs> you're not wrestling anymore. And you have something. You have this comic book shop. Why don't you kind of give us... Like, you know, a quick plug and stuff. Oh, absolutely. On your your shop. Definitely. I'm the founder and owner of Kirby Comics. 
Uh, we're in Hanover, PA. We're at 398 York Street, Suite 11, Hanover, PA, 17331 is the zip. Um, you can get me on Instagram is the best way to contact me. It's the easiest way. And on Instagram, I'm Kirby Comic Store. Um, if you have any questions, if you're not on Instagram, I'm on Facebook under just Kirby Comics. You can ask me any questions on there. Or uh, my my web is uh, at Gmail, Kirby Comic Store at gmail.com. My business phone, which I only answer during business hours, is 717-668-4709. Uh, my hours are generally at night. Um, I have long hours on the weekends. But um, I typically, um, I, I, I like to make people comfortable, but I like to offer uh, something different that they, they've never seen before in a comic store. More of a, like I said about Paul Lee with ECW, mm -hmm. creating a culture uh, more so than just selling products. Um, I believe people come in more for the social aspect of, of meeting, of talking, of meeting other people with their same likes than actually coming in and, and, and buying a certain comic book. Let me say, uh, I could say this about the uh, uh, Matt store. I've been there a couple times. And yeah. Jay, you know, you and your daughter who uh, love comics and collect comics. And I, yeah. I, I'm a, a novice uh, comic book <laughs> collector. And obviously I'm a novice at wrestling knowledge now as too, after this is all said and done. But um, it, you go into it and it's that old school feel yeah. of going to Kirby's comic store. So, you know, Jay, next time you're in town, we'll definitely go there. Um, Absolutely. But, but it's, again, you know, Matt, thank you so much for doing this with us. Yes, um, thank you. We really thank you. It's been an honor. It's and, been an honor with you guys. And I can't wait to do this again. And we're going to do it again. And I'm sure. And if you're willing to do it, um, Jay and, and his daughter do shows about comic books all the time. Awesome. By, by all means, Join them because they, they'll probably spin your head around with that stuff like you do at the restaurant for us. So, <laughs> so, again, make sure you guys check out uh, Matt at Kirby Comic Store on Instagram, right? Yes. I won't mention Kirby. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Kirby Comic Store on Instagram. Facebook, Kirby Comics. Oh, I wasn't going to mention there the, you Facebook, go. the Facebook because I know Jay doesn't like the Facebook thing. Yes. Uh, nah, you got to get it out there. Facebook <laughs> is like Chevy Chase to Jay. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Jay is not, I'm big, he's not a big Chevy Chase fan. Uh, no, so not at all. <laughs> you can find us, uh, Enter the Nerd Zone, at Enter the Nerd Zone on Instagram as well as on Facebook. Thanks, Jay. And yeah. uh, <laughs> where else can they find us, Jay? Okay, well, you know, we're right here on the Anchor app, so Anchor has that call-in feature, so give us a call, leave us a message. If you have a question for Matt, we will definitely pass it along to him. Uh, you know, you can listen to us on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Google Play, Spotify. Really, if you can find a podcast somewhere, Pete and I are probably there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, definitely, you know, if you're in, in, in Hanover, PA, you know, check out Kirby Comic Store. But if you are in central New Jersey, Milltown area, please go to Main Street Comics. Uh, just like Matt's store. I mean, it is small. It is old school. Uh, I got to say, you know, what I love about it is, you know, Diana would go in there. They know her. They know what she likes. They just put it aside for her. 
you know, her stuff is there waiting for her all the time. So, Pete, if they're out in California, though, where should they go? They should go to the Lag Bar, which uh, is gaming and and, uh, and alcohol, uh, basically. Uh, it's a great place right by, right by Disney World. I will say one thing about the comic book store for uh, Matt. Um, this is Matt's store, one of the few stores, and I'm sure, like, Main Street does a great job of this, too. Every comic you get, Matt's already bored it and, and – uh, Bag and board it. Bag, every, every book. Every, every book, book is yep. is bag and boarded for you. So, yeah, make sure, you go. Che- make sure you're checking out all those things. Make sure you're checking us out on uh, all those places where we could be found. Everywhere. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's only one le- one thing left to say, Jay. I think there is. Uh, same bad time. Same bad channel. And whether you like it or not, you better check it out because it's the best thing going down. Woo! Love it. Love it. <laughs>